Well, I have um, some great news for you this morning, uh, people of Alliance Bible Fellowship. Uh, to you, it has been granted to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. You, you see, not everyone understands uh, th that mystery. The truth is there are insiders and, and outsiders. Insiders who believe and, and, and therefore understand and outsiders who oppose, who, who refuse to believe and therefore don't understand. For, for several months we have been looking um, at the Gospel of Mark and, and we remember that it is Mark's purpose to present Jesus as the Christ, the, the Son of God. And, and, and having seen his works and, and heard his words through these months and through these years, we believe, don't we? And so it's been granted to us to know the, the mystery of the kingdom. And others, while hearing and seeing, they refuse to believe and, and therefore they don't understand. After all, Paul called the, the cross foolishness to those who don't believe. Let, let me be clear. Jesus came preaching the gospel of God. We saw that in chapter 1. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And some believe. Right there in Capernaum, on the, on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus called a couple of sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and, and John. And, and they followed. They believed. He then taught in the synagogue with authority. He wowed his his listeners, no one's ever taught like this, and a few more believed. Not only that, his first miracle was in, uh, in this particular gospel was on that day in the Sabbath, and when he cast out a demon, more undoubtedly believed. And he then went to Peter and Andrew's house and healed Peter's mother-in-law. The news began to spread. The crowds began to gather. More believed. Why wouldn't everyone? I mean, Jesus cast out demons all over the place. He healed people of every imaginable disease. Not only that, he actually forgave a man his sin. The kingdom was at hand. Why wouldn't people want that? Why wouldn't they believe in that? Here's the truth. Not everybody liked what he said. Not everybody liked what he did, both then and today. And so a careful reading of the first three chapters of Mark that we just finished sees, yes, rising popularity, but also rising opposition. It started right there in chapter 1 when he drove out that demon on the, on the Sabbath. And it wasn't really his fault. The demon accosted him, but the religious leaders, they took notice. And then in chapter 2, he actually had the audacity to forgive that man of, uh, of his sin. It sent the religious leaders over the edge. You can forgive sins, but, but God. And then uh, Jesus called a tax collector. Are you kidding me? A tax collector to be his follower. And he actually went to his house and partied with sinners. Pharisees didn't like that one bit. Rising popularity, but rising opposition. Then there was that fasting thing. You remember that? The disciples of the Pharisees, the disciples of John, they both fast. Why does, 
Why doesn't Jesus, why doesn't his disciples, why don't they fast? It's what spiritual people do. And, and then horror of horrors, again, on the Sabbath, not only did they not fast, they began picking grain and, and eating it right up there on the Sabbath. Religious opposition didn't like that, rising opposition. Then we got to chapter 3 where where Jesus actually healed a man on the Sabbath. I mean, he only had a withered hand. Come on, that could have that waited till Sunday. You didn't have to do that on the Sabbath. And so as early as Mark chapter 3, the Pharisees left the synagogue that particular day and began conspiring with the Herodians as to how they might kill Jesus. I've been saying it. With his rising popularity came rising opposition. So here's the question. How will you respond to, to the words and, and works of Jesus? That's why we're going through this gospel. How are you going to respond? Because you do understand it will, it will affect your understanding of, of the kingdom of God. <laughs> We've seen that some were indifferent to the evidence. The evidence that I think is indisputable, undeniable. Others resented, even resisted him. Some ultimately rejected and even opposed him. They, they said, his words, his words, we can't deny them, but so this is what we'll do. We'll say they're of the devil, don't believe him. To which we heard Jesus say some rather hard things. You've now gone too far. Don't miss that context. You've gone too far. You've committed the unpardonable sin. There is now no hope for you. But I have great news for you, people of Alliance. As subjects of the kingdom, those who have not doubted or, or, or have not been indifferent or rejected, those who have believed, Jesus has some things to say to you. And only to you. You see, in this kingdom, there are insiders and, and outsiders. Those who believe and those who don't. And those who don't, don't get it. But for those of us who do, he's going to begin describing for us the nature of his kingdom. While it is opposed, while, while many reject it, the kingdom will advance. The, the church will be built the, the king of his kingdom, the head of his church. He's going to tell us some things ab about his rule. We arrive in our study uh, of Mark at a, at a new section. Mark, Mark actually talks a lot about Jesus' teaching, but he actually records less of that teaching than any of the other gospel writers. There are only two significant portions in Mark's gospel of Jesus' teaching. It's in our chapter that we begin this morning, Mark chapter 4, and then later in Mark chapter 13. In this chapter, we're going to look at the what I'm calling the parables of the kingdom. And for you believers, in, insiders, these truths are for you. And only for you. Now, as we begin, I, I suppose we should start by defining this, this thing, this kingdom. You see, Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So what is this kingdom? There are basically three views concerning the kingdom today that I, that I want to run through right quickly. First is, is this. It's the view that the kingdom is here in all of its fullness 
right now. That's right. There's nothing more to come. Jesus is ruling on the earth right now as much as he is ever going to, at least until the second coming when the earth is destroyed and we all go to heaven. Now, out of this view flows my favorite target, the health, wealth, and prosperity theology. God wants you to have everything because the fullness of the kingdom is here. He wants you to have everything right now. Now, there are obviously problems with this view. It teaches that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy all the time. And of course, we all know, I think, we all know Christians who have been sick. I suspect that some of you Christians have been sick or are sick. And then we got this other problem. I don't know if you've noticed, but Christians still die. Hey, we still have to deal with demons and the forces of evil, and we don't live in a perfect world. People who say the kingdom is here in all of its fullness uh, say the problem is with our faith. Uh, We just don't believe enough. If we did, we wouldn't be sick. There would be unbelievable health and wealth and prosperity, to which I respond, okay, fine. Let's go with that for a minute. The ultimate problem with the curse is death. If the kingdom is here in all of its fullness, then here you go, don't die. If you have enough faith, you won't die, so don't. Of course, we understand Christians die, sometimes inexplicably. So there's obviously some sense in which the kingdom is not yet here in all of its fullness. But, but, but that leads to the, the second, and, and, and actually it's the opposite view of the kingdom. The kingdom is not here at all. That is, when Jesus came to this earth, he offered the kingdom to the Jews. They rejected it. And so Jesus said, thank you very much. I'll take that right back to heaven with me when I go. And the kingdom is not here at all today. It's, it's totally a future thing. This leaves us then here today in a, an extreme form of what is called dispensationalism. Now, if you don't know what that is, Right now, bow your head and praise Jesus. <laughs> Basically, what it teaches is that there are no gifts, largely no power, no kingdom life now. Some of you who have been around for a while say, I knew you were not a dispensationalist. You're right. I do have a, a bit of a challenge with that whole left behind thing. But I do believe there is some value in this dispensationalism. I just don't buy all of it. The extreme or or hyper-dispensationalism uh, says that we are living completely in a parenthetical age. It's called the church age. I believe in that, but it's not to be confused with the kingdom of God. The kingdom is not here at all, which means, frankly, we're wasting our time in this gospel of Mark. We're wasting our time in the gospel narratives. You see, since Jesus, uh, since the Jews rejected Jesus, there is no kingdom. The, gospels, the gospel of the kingdom is not for us, so we should be moved to the epistles. Obviously, I don't believe that, which leads to the third view, one I've shared with you before, but it's incredibly important as we get ready to jump into these parables of the kingdom. I want you to understand that I believe that there is an already not yet presence of the kingdom. What, what do I mean by that? I do believe the kingdom is here right now. Jesus does rule in the hearts of his people through the church. This is, yes, rightly called the church age. So there is a sense in which the kingdom is already here, but it, <laughs> it is not yet here in all of its fullness. 
there will be a, a time in the future when Jesus returns, however that looks. I'll let you figure that out from the book of Revelation. And, and sets up his, his kingdom in all of its fullness. There'll be no evil, no sickness, no death. Only grace and life and, and truth. And until then, we have to deal with the effects of sin and, and what sin drug in with it. The big three, namely uh, demons, disease, and death. But in his grace... We do see him giving us foretastes of that fullness. Think about it. Every time someone is healed, and I believe that God heals today, it is a reminder that in the fullness of the future kingdom, there will be no sickness. Every time a demon is driven out, and I believe that happens today, is a reminder that in the future kingdom there will be no demons. And every time a person is born again, their sins forgiven, brought into the kingdom of God, it is a reminder that there will be no sin in the fullness of the future kingdom. There is an already not yet aspect to this kingdom of God. We live in the already. We're not yet in the not yet does mean that forgiveness is for today. It does mean the gifts are for today. It means that healing is for today. It means the kingdom power is for today. The kingdom is here right now. So these parables that we're getting ready to jump into, some would suggest that we just skip over them. They're not for us. These parables of the kingdom are for us because we are, well, insiders. Therefore, our understanding. God, Jesus wants us to understand what the king is doing in his world. So let's begin by reading Mark 1, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to drop down and read verses 10 to 12. Now this, this is critically important. This is another one of those sandwich methods that, that Mark uses. He, he, he starts a story, he interrupts it to, to say something else, and then he finishes the story. But remember, those are related themes. This is critically important to understanding uh, parables uh, th this morning. He starts, the, uh, he, he starts with the story of the parable of the sower with the setting in verses 1 and 2. We're going to look at that. He tells the parable of the sower, verses 3 to 9. We're going to save that for next week. He interrupts it uh, to tell us the purpose of parables in verses 10 to 12. And then that's kind of the middle of the sandwich. Then he tells us the meaning of the parables in, uh, of the parable in verses 13 to 20. Today, we're going to just look at that setting, those first couple of verses, and then we're going to look at, at, the, at the middle of the sandwich. That is the purpose of parables. So let's begin by reading Mark chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He, that is Jesus, began to teach again by the sea, and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down, and the whole crowd was by the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables and was saying to them in his teaching, stop right there. After, after finishing with his with his scribes and his family, outsiders, remember, Jesus left the house that he was in. He went down to the sea, that is, to the Sea of Galilee. And I have been saying this over and over. I'm going to keep saying it. Those that we expect to be insiders, that is, the religious establishment. Come on, even his families, we expect them to, to be insiders. They weren't. And those we expect to be outsiders, you know, tax collectors and prostitutes and, and sinners and, and Gentiles, they weren't outsiders, they're insiders, aren't you glad? We read here the crowds were so large, they were pushing in around him that he, that he went out in, in a boat and sat down and, and began to speak to them, sat down, lots of discussion about as to, what, as to why he sat down to teach, because everybody understands you're supposed to stand when you 
preach and people to, to take great pains to say that, you know, back then it was the practice that the teacher sat down. But let me just go ahead and clear this up for you. He was in a boat. And so he did not want to rock the boat. He didn't want to tip the boat over, baby. <laughs> so, from there he gives then his first parable uh, about a sower and some seed and some different kinds of soil that received that seed. We're going to save that for next week. But the parable of the sower has everything to do with, this, with the truth that there are outsiders and insiders. Let's drop down now to verses 10 to 12 and let's see the purpose of the parables. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the all began asking about the parables, the parable of the sower. And he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But the, those who are outside get everything in parables. Why? This is, this is hard, people. So that while seeing, they may see and not perceive. That's why I speak in parables. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. It's tough words. So I, I want to do, I am laying groundwork today, just so you know. Okay? So you can just sit back and relax. Uh, we're going to talk about parables today. We're gonna, I'm going to define what parables are, and then we're going to discuss the purpose of parables. And again, this is, these are difficult words. may come as a bit of a surprise. The truth is parables are only for insiders. They are not for outsiders. And who are outsiders? Don't miss the context. Outsiders are those who refuse to believe. They've seen it all. They've heard it all and refuse. You won't get it. Foolishness. Let's begin with that very first one, the first point, what are parables? We've all heard the definition. A parable is a, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. As simple as that sounds, I discovered in my study it's really not that easy. In fact, there's no real easy answer to what a parable is. The, the word appears, kind of interesting, 48 times in the Synoptic Gospels. That is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But it only appears two other, it doesn't appear in John at all, by the way. And it only appears two other times in the rest of the New Testament, both times in the book of Hebrews. The word parable comes from the Greek word parabole, and it literally means to throw or to lay something aside, alongside something else. So in a parable, we lay something alongside something else. They're usually not together in order to compare them for greater understanding. So let me give you a full definition of a parable. I found this. I found it very helpful. I'll give it to you. Whatever. It, it's, a, it's a brief story, narrative, or statement drawn from human life or nature, not relating to an actual event, not necessarily, but, but true to life and concerning something very familiar to the listeners, given for the purpose, here's what they're given, they're given for the purpose of teaching spiritual truth to insiders. Now, they can come in the form of, of riddles, profound or obscure sayings, maxims, proverbs, analogies, comparisons, and illustrative stories. Almost all of them are similes. You've heard that, remember from your high school days, a simile has those comparative words like like or as, the kingdom of God is like simile and, and, and metaphors. And so through our time in chapter 4, Jesus is going to lay the kingdom alongside things like sowers and, wheat and seed and wheat and weeds and baskets and lamps and mustard seeds, all so that we can understand the kingdom. 
These are word pictures to help us understand these deep truths. They are, though, for insiders. Because for those who refuse to believe, and notice the order, those who refuse to believe, they will only seem as stories to them and further harden them in their rejection. Now, Let's have a little bit of fun this morning um, because we do have a bit of a problem as it relates to parables. For the first 19 centuries, through the 1800s of the church, parables were seen as allegories. You notice I did not use the word allegory in that list that I gave you. What is an allegory? An allegory is a story with a hidden message behind the story, and every detail of the story, or most details of the story, has some corresponding truth attached to it. Let me give you an example. Several of you have read John Bunyan's work, Pilgrim's Progress. That's a great book. It's a great allegory. Okay? With the coming of the 20th century, now we're past those first 19th century, with the 20th century in the 1900s, conservative scholars began to question the validity of seeing parables as allegories. They, they listed all kinds of, of problems with seeing them as allegories. First, let me give you one problem. When reading a parable, if there are a bunch of hidden me meanings and messages, who gets to decide what those hidden messages are? Who decides? Through the centuries, while interpreting the parables, no two people, even biblical scholars, seem to be able to agree what the hidden messages are. There are all kinds of interpretations, very elaborate, and by the way, very arbitrary. Not only that, a second problem with parables is that they were interpreted, it's a big word, it's an important word, anachronistically. All right? Anachronistically, which means this. Later teachings or doctrines of the church were read back into the parables. And, and, and we were missing what Jesus was, who, who actually perfected the telling of parables. They, they missed entirely what, what Jesus was actually saying. Things really started to get carried away. Let me give you some examples. Perhaps the best known example uh, is that of St. Augustine, who lived in the 5th century A.D., and his interpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Since many of you work at Samaritan's Purse, you need to write this down so you understand exactly what it is that you are doing. This is what he said about the parable of the Good Samaritan. The wounded man, he said, stood for Adam. Jerusalem was the heavenly city from which Adam had fallen. Jericho was the moon. I don't know. We stand for man's mortality. The robbers were the devil and his angels who stripped the man of his immortality and beat him by persuading him to sin. The priest and the Levite were the priesthood and ministry of the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. The Good Samaritan was, of course, Christ. The binding of the man's wounds were the restraint of sin. The oil and wine were the comfort of hope and encouragement to work. The donkey... I struggle with this one, was the incarnation. Not sure I get that. The end was the church. The two denial were the two commandments to love. You know, love God, love people. And are you ready? The innkeeper was the apostle Paul. Isn't that abundantly clear to you when you read the parable of the Good Samaritan? Isn't that what you came up with in your studies? I thought normal Bible study was challenging. What happened was this allegorizing of parables then began to be applied to, to all of Scripture. I shared this with you before, but it's one of my favorites. And 
of assigning hidden meanings to every point of Scripture. And this particular one is found in John chapter 21. You remember the story. It was after the resurrection. Jesus told his disciples, meet me in Galilee. He delays his coming. So Peter one night says, I'm going fishing. And six other disciples went with him. Seven people went fishing all night long, but were told that night they caught nothing. The next morning, Jesus was standing on the shore. They could not tell that it was he. He told them to cast their nets on the other side of the boat. And when they did, they pulled up an enormous catch of fish. In fact, John, who was a former fisherman, tells us there were 153 large fish. Isn't that exciting? Well, what does that number 153 mean? Haven't you always wondered that? I am here to enlighten you. Here you go. First, Cyril of Alexandria said this. 100 is the number for Gentiles. You know that, right? I didn't either. 50 is the number for Jews. You knew... I didn't either. Three is the number for Trinity. I get that. Now add those up. 100 plus 50 plus 3 equals 153. This is incredible. Do you see the significance? Neither do I. Let's go back to our favorite Augustine who said 10 is the number of law. I get that one. Uh, 10 commandments. 7 is the number of grace. So we got law and grace. 7, I guess, because of perfection. Not really sure. Add those two together. 10 plus 7 equals 17. Isn't that exciting? What's the point? Well, I'm glad you asked because if you add 17 plus 16 plus 15 plus 14 and go all the way down to 3, 2, 1, guess what you get? 153. This is incredible. Unbelievable. Where would we be without Augustine? What does it mean? I have no idea. Jerome, early church father, said that there were 153 species of fish known in the Sea of Galilee at this time. This speaks to the universality of the gospel message. It makes me want to cry. <laughs> Can you believe it? There were not only 153 large fish, 153 fish, they were large fish, and they were one of every species in the net. Amen. A fairly recent author, this is a recent author, said the number of fish caught is given, 153. The number of nations of the world at that time was exactly, are you ready, 153. How significant this is, the author writes. Thus all the nations of the world will be gathered into his kingdom. That is inconceivable. Exactly. Let me tell you what I think 153 means. Are you ready? It means it was a lot of fish. I happen to know that every fisherman who goes fishing will tell you exactly how many fish they caught, as if you care. <laughs> so I am studying this. I'm going over my notes yesterday, uh, and, and I knew that Doug Cheshire went fishing on Friday. So I tested my theory, and I texted him yesterday, and he told me he caught six fish. And I'm thinking, how long were you out there to catch six fish? And then he told me, but the seventh fish, the largest fish, got away right when it got close to the boat. Every fisherman tells you something about a large fish. The point is, every fisherman knows exactly how many fish they caught. And we remember this book, the Gospel of John, was written by a former fisherman. And he knew that 153 fish was like a lot of fish. This borders on the miraculous exactly. With all of this abuse of allegorization of Scripture, near the end of the 19th century, 
right? Remember, I told you it was through the first 19th century of the church. Through the 20th century, biblical scholars swung with the pendulum and they went to the other extreme, all right? And you have perhaps heard this, that parables have one and only one central meaning. How many of you have heard that before? Like three of you, okay. Um, and, and, and they suggest that to try to assign specific Meanings to elements of the parable is allegor allegorization. It should be rejected outright. Don't do that, they tell us. Of course, there's one major problem with that understanding. Jesus only interpreted two of his parables in the scripture here in Mark chapter 4 uh, with the parable of the sower, which we'll see next week. And in Matthew chapter 13, parallel passage, when he interprets the parable of the sower and the parable of the wheat and tares. And guess what he does? He allegorizes it. Jesus, what are you doing? And he assigns specific meanings to most, not all, but most of the elements of the parable. Critics of Jesus <laughs> say this was added by Matthew and Mark. Jesus didn't really say it. Or Jesus has the authority to interpret his parables however he wants. We should, however, not do that. All of that, little aside, to say this. We're going to try our best to understand the meaning of the parables. We have to do some work, but I think it's worth it because I believe these parables are for us to help us to understand the kingdom of God. And I believe that we will understand them because, the purpose of the, uh, because of the purpose of the parables, which brings us very quickly to our second point. I'm almost done. Why did Jesus speak in parables? What is the purpose of the parables? We're not left in the dark. Jesus tells us in verses 10 to 12. Very simply, he says this. Parables have two purposes. Number one, to conceal, and number two, to reveal. And Matthew says it like this in the parallel passage in chapter Matthew 13. Jesus answered them in response to what, what, why these parables. To you, people of alliance, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. You are insiders. It's not been granted to outsiders. The word mystery appears only here in the, in the gospel narratives and the parallel accounts as well. Um, but it was one of Paul's favorite words. Remember, we, we've seen it several times in our study of Paul's epistles. He uses it like 21 times. Uh, and you remember that we discovered there that a mystery is not like something um, secret or a riddle or mysterious or like a whodunit. It speaks rather, the word mystery in the Greek speaks of something that was hidden in the past but now has, this is exciting, but has now been made known to you. This is an important part of understanding Jesus' use of the parables. He's revealing to us something previously hidden, but now has been made known to us. Jesus tells us right here the parables, at least those he's about to give us, have to do with the mystery of the kingdom. Those formerly unknown, now made known, these mysteries have to do with the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Here we see it mainly has to do with the power and presence of the kingdom brought near to us because of Jesus. And we get to look into, we get to peer into it. It's exciting. Now let me make a qualification very, very quickly. The kingdom, when I talk about the kingdom, it includes the church but it should not be confused with the church. All right? The kingdom and the church are not synonymous. The kingdom of God includes the church, but it is not exclusively the church. Now, most prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah point to his second coming and the establishment of what 
I think, is an earthly kingdom and his subsequent eternal kingdom. But only hints are given about this present earthly kingdom that began with his resurrection, crucifixion and resurrection, and will continue until he returns. We are in what is called the church age, but the kingdom does exist right now in the church, in the hearts of his people. This is the already part of the kingdom I talked about earlier that is spiritually in the hearts of followers of Jesus. The king is present with his people, but he is not visible, nor is he always evident to the world. The mystery Paul defines for us further in Colossians. The mystery is... The church, which is Christ in you, the hope of of glory. And because he is in us by his spirit, we have been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom. I'm excited about teaching these to you over the next few weeks. From there, Jesus makes clear that some will know the mysteries of the kingdom and some will not. That's why he spoke in parables. This is challenging. It sounds a bit mean. But we have to remember the context. Jesus spoke in, parab- in parables first to conceal. He, he then goes on to quote Isaiah 6. In the context of Isaiah 6 is important. The Jews were in the midst of sweeping judgment. Prophet after prophet had been sent, but they refused to listen. And they were in this, in this judgment. They were on the verge of captivity in Babylon. There were still prophets like Isaiah who were decrying their condition, announcing their fate. But for them, it was too late. They had been sealed in the hardness of their hearts. While they would hear, they would not understand. While they would see, they would not perceive. This is exactly what Jesus is saying through these parables. Remember the context. The scribes had just reached their final conclusion about Jesus. He is possessed by a demon. Jesus says, you've gone too far. And with that, he embarks on a scathing denunciation that we looked at. And now he begins to speak in parables. Why? To seal them in their fate. They had come to a settled conviction of rejection. So hearing now, they will not understand. Seeing, they will not perceive. As hard as that sounds, remember the context. They had gone too far. Mark is writing. Jesus is calling people the crowds. I am calling you... People make a decision about Jesus. Those who believe in Him will receive even more, but those who reject even what they have will be taken from you. Make a decision. In closing, let me look at the parallel account in Mark 13, verses 16 and 17. Up to now, I'm just going to read it to you. For those of us who believe, here you go, here we are, we are people who believe. We read this. Blessed are your eyes. Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. The parables have been given to conceal from those who don't believe, but to reveal to those of you who do. Blessed are you. We are blessed people here this morning. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to study the parables of the kingdom, and you will hear, and you will see, and you will understand because you are blessed. Jesus said, 
truly I say to you, people of alliance, that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it, and hear what you hear and did not hear it. You are a blessed people today. You have received much because you believe. And from the time of your conversion into the time you die, you will continue to receive more and more. And I'm not talking health, wealth. I'm talking spiritual prosperity. And it will be given you in abundance. So I want to encourage you, I'm done, to pray over the next few weeks that God will open the eyes of our hearts to understand what He has for us in these parables of the kingdom. They're for you. Let's stand for prayer.